Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. The committee will come to order. It was July of 2022. The Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, then chaired by Congressman James Clyburn, met to talk about what some have called a downstream pandemic related to COVID-19. Our nation has made tremendous progress in the fight against the coronavirus because of the powerful protection provided by widely available vaccines, treatments, testing, and other tools. Even as we celebrate these accomplishments, and work to continue our progress. Many Americans, unfortunately, continue to suffer from a condition known as long COVID, defined as experiencing symptoms beyond the time period of one's initial coronavirus infection. The first to testify at this hearing was a San Antonio doctor. Chairman Clyburn and honorable members of the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis, Thank you for inviting me to speak today. My name is Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. I'm professor and chair of rehabilitation medicine at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Dr. Gutierrez also runs two long COVID clinics in San Antonio, and this was the second time she'd spoken before a congressional subcommittee trying to help representatives in Washington, D.C. understand the suffering her patients and many COVID survivors across the country were experiencing and imploring them to help. In August of 2020, I saw my first patients with long COVID. Many of them are frontline workers and public servants. Almost 500 patients later, and each one has their own battles with long COVID. Patients who've developed autoimmune disease, who can't stand up for two minutes without their heart rate going up the roof, who have fatigue a hundred times worse than when they had cancer, marathoners who can't run, healthcare providers who can't physically or cognitively return to the bedside. And no matter the variant, no matter the severity, no matter the age or prior health of the patient, COVID is impacting millions of Americans. And soon, just about two weeks later... It literally felt like I had allergies. You know, some cough, some runny nose, and sneezing. And was a little fatigued. I had gone to run in the morning, and the, the, the run was really harder than it should have been for a short run. And also, the other thing I'd noticed is actually my resting heart rate was higher than usual. So it's something as a runner, I have my watch where I'm kind of monitoring all these, you know, my vitals and data all the time. And so my resting heart rate was a little bit up and I had these little symptoms. So I went ahead just to be very safe to test myself. It was positive. She had COVID, a mild case. She stopped testing positive in five days and threw herself right back into the busy life of a doctor, a wife, and a mother. A couple weeks later, I had gone on a run one morning and after the run, I started breaking out in hives in different parts of my body, like my knees and my elbows and my face. And I was like, this is very weird. And was actually after that run exhausted 
And it was something like a simple run that I just do on the usual and was pretty much had to be laying out on the couch for the rest of that day. The other thing with the run was that my heart rate was high, very high, um, especially for a run that was just a, a nice jog. It wasn't anything stressful. I wasn't racing. I wasn't doing a workout. It's just a, let, let me go work out this day. So it was very odd to have both break out in the hives, have my heart rate be very high, and then also be very exhausted after that. And so those were kind of the first symptoms that I had. Yeah. So Dr. Gutierrez was having symptoms that she saw in her clinics every day. Symptoms that told her she might be over her initial COVID-19 infection, but COVID-19 wasn't over her. The long COVID doctor had long COVID. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. Today, we're talking to Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez as a physician and now also as a patient about long COVID. Anytime I was up, I just felt just terrible and also getting a lot of headaches and migraines during this period as well. And I was out and about and had gone. Um, one thing I also, other than run, love running, I love shopping. And I was at a, you know, a shopping mall and just, I was having to stop and sit down in places because I was just felt anytime I was up or trying to carry my bag, it was exhausting and my heart rate was going fast and I felt so lightheaded and terrible and I had to cut it short. Dr. Gutierrez runs marathons. She runs those two long COVID clinics, and she's a partner in running a home as a mom to two children. But after recovering from COVID-19, she couldn't walk around a mall. The other thing that I got a lot was migraines, too. So I had that autonomic dysfunction with, you know, the heart rate, and even my blood pressure was going up and down as well. Um, the rashes, the fatigue, the especially the the post-exertional malaise, which is when you do something that would just be a regular activity, that should be fine for me that I was used to doing. There was a crash afterwards. So, you know, an easy a run, a crash, uh, you know, a trip, a crash, um, and then getting a lot of the headaches. And so that was some of the symptoms that I was dealing with for, for quite some time. Gutierrez recognized all of these symptoms, some linked to something that is common among long COVID patients, a disabling disorder called dysautonomia. Dysautonomia is what happens when a person's autonomic nervous system goes haywire. So definitely, so our autonomic nervous system is just part of our neurologic nervous system. And it should be a part that is, our body does naturally and autonomic. Like it helps regulate our heart rate. It, it regulates our fight and flight response. It helps us sweat. It helps us, you know, dilate our blood vessels and, you know, do all these things that we should naturally be doing without thinking about it. And when someone has autonomic dysfunction or dysautonomia, then there are several different subtypes of dysautonomia that people can present with. And it seems that we're especially seeing a lot of this after COVID. You may have heard about one type of dysautonomia, in particular, POTS. Postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. 
So it really means when someone's standing up, when they're you know they're posturally up, they're they become tachycardic. So usually the difference of the heart rate from someone when they're laying to when they're standing, their heart rate will go up by 30 and sometimes even be over 120 beats per minute when they're standing. And that could be standing and doing nothing. And um, so that's one manifestation. There's also orthostatic hypotension. So when a person stands up, their blood pressure drops. And there's inappropriate sinus tachycardia, which is when your heart rate is consistently high. And the thing about these heart-related manifestations of dysautonomia they can't really be diagnosed with the standard tests of your heart. So you could go to your doctor, actually have POTS, and the doctor might miss it. They get seen, they say, like, I'm feeling palpitations, I'm feeling my heart rate goes up, and they get kind of the traditional tests. You know, their EKG might look fine, but for the most part, when you do an EKG, you're laying down, right? Or they're get an echocardiogram, and of course, their heart might look good and it's pumping normally. And so that they may get a checkbox on that. They may get a little um, a heart rate monitor to monitor them for a week or so. And even their heart rate monitor may show like, oh, you have some periods when it went up, but it's not an abnormal rhythm. So they tell them they're fine. But to do to get the diagnosis of POTS, you can either do it with a 10 minute stand test, which is pretty easy to do, or a tilt table test, which has to be ordered. But really, we we can do it with a stand test. So sometimes even just uh, doing one on your own or doing one in your physician's office and seeing what how your heart rate responds to even standing and what kind of symptoms you have. And so there's uh, sometimes, you know, they go through these other things and say, check, that's normal, check, that's normal. And they never do the stand test. Right. And Gutierrez says dysautonomia can manifest in a bunch of other life-altering ways. Sweating can be different. You're going to have headaches. You're going to have palpitations. You're going to have a dizziness because what's happening is, you know, your body's trying to get the blood to your brain during this time. And so if you're not getting blood to your brain during this time, you're going to start feeling a little lightheaded, a little dizzy. You're going to have to sit down. You're going to have, you get a lot of headaches. You get kind of the, what we call coat hanger pain, because that's where the neck pain and the back of the neck pain happens. And, and there's GI symptoms that go with it as well. All of this may interfere with your ability to work. Some patients, they really, they are really limited in how much they can stand up and be up and do upright activities. And imagine if you had a job where you're on your feet all the time. So I feel like I'm very lucky and where, you know, if I'm seeing someone in clinic and I need to have a seat, I can have a seat. <laughs> you know, I don't have to be up like doing a surgery for a long time or maybe someone who's serving food in a restaurant or someone who works, you know, behind the counter at HEB, you know, that's going to impact their life or someone that's a firefighter and they have to like carry packs and run into buildings. And it's a lot more difficult, uh, kind of depending on what your job is. And long COVID is interfering with people's ability to work. According to a study from the New York State Insurance Fund, which pays for workers' compensation claims in that state, about 18% of people with long COVID had not returned to work for more than a year after getting COVID. And we're not talking just about older folks. Three quarters of them were under 60 years old. 
An additional 40% of people with symptoms of long COVID did go back to work within two months, but still had to see a doctor regularly. The insurance fund says that can translate to reduced hours, lower productivity, and a need for other workplace accommodations. But what about the worker, say the single mom doing shift work for minimum wage, who can't take time off at all, no matter how sick they are? And that's where it's so difficult. That's where it's still... Like, that's where we need, you know, government help for recognition of long COVID and support for disabled workers and to be able to make sure these people get assessed, seen, helped, education, being able to have financial support to be off work while they're healing from this. And we don't have that. So it's really hard, yeah, for that single mother who's doing shift work, trying to make ends meet, maybe have to be on her feet all the time have to do all the work at home because they can't, you know, they don't have someone who's supporting them in the home system. It is really a story of haves and have-nots. For Gutierrez, the reality of living with long COVID was a tough pill to swallow. So I think when it really hit me, my husband, you know, one day I was just lying on the couch because sometimes that would happen. Like I just kind of really crash and be like, this is all I could do for this day. And he told me, he's like, this is really disabling for you. And it really took his kind of insight to say, oh yeah, yeah, I think he's right that, you know, I, all I did was try to jog three miles this morning and the rest of the day I'm, I'm on the couch and I can't get up and I need to take a nap or, you know, I'd make it through a day of work and and then could do nothing else. Just be like, I need to go to bed. It's 7.30 p.m. You know, I don't go to bed at 7.30 p.m. <laughs> generally. But he was like, wow, this is a really disabling for you right now. Accepting that her life was, at least for now, much smaller than it was before because of long COVID was difficult. But she says it's much more difficult for people who have families who can't or don't support them, or in some cases don't even believe them. It's more difficult for people who can't get in to see doctors for months or who don't have insurance and can't see them at all. It's more difficult for people whose doctors don't recognize their symptoms might be related to a past COVID infection or don't order the right tests, or don't even believe them when they self-report their symptoms. They say it's all in their head. Gutierrez knew it wasn't all in her head. She knew what she had. She's been able to access specialists and treatments, and she's been able to rest, which is probably the most important thing you could do. And definitely it's starting to kind of go towards normal, but I'm definitely not in the same shape that I was in. I'm not at all doing what I could do physically before um, in regards to where I was in it, at an athletic level at all. Um, you know, I'm th- thankful I can like stay, be up and stay up in clinic and not have to, you know, take more, like seat, sitting breaks. But, um, and then I've had to watch my blood pressure as well. Very closely watch my blood pressure, being on the verge maybe of getting on medications at a young age. Right. And that's the thing about long COVID. 
like the initial infection, it can impact a person in several different seemingly unrelated ways. You could be a healthy person pre-COVID, then suddenly post-COVID, you have high blood pressure or high blood sugar or brain fog and problems paying attention or remembering things or shortness of breath or random, scary, allergic reactions like hives out of nowhere. Are we any closer to understanding what's going on? It's definitely an immune response, an abnormal immune response. Okay, that's a start. When Petri Dish continues, we'll talk with Dr. Gutierrez about some of the top theories about what causes long COVID, and we'll explore how COVID infection could be linked to sudden death weeks or months later. Support for Petri Dish is made possible by UT Health San Antonio, committed to transforming the health of the community through a team that tackles problems from every angle, doing everything it takes to bring each patient the best possible outcomes, from teaching tomorrow's healthcare leaders to translating research into new treatments. UT Health San Antonio strives to make lives better. Learn more at everythingittakes.org. Welcome back to Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. We're talking about long COVID, or is it long haul COVID? Is it post-acute COVID-19 or post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection? The acronym for that is PASC. Or is it chronic COVID? People experiencing symptoms of the post-viral syndrome that we're talking about today named it long COVID back in 2020, and that's what most people call it still, but it has as many names as it does manifestations. The CDC and the World Health Organization do agree that it's a clinical diagnosis. Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez is with us in this episode sharing her expertise on long COVID as a person who runs two long COVID clinics in San Antonio, Texas, and who has long COVID herself. So long COVID is a clinical diagnosis, as she said. It's made based on symptoms, history, and a physical exam. There's no definitive blood test or any other kind of test to diagnose it. But everyone seems to define it a little bit differently. I think we definitely have definitions of the disease and probably, you know, it's best that, okay, which one are we going to stick with? Like with what time and what symptoms and what phenotypes, which is a fancy word to say, like, what are the exact presentations that people have? And so I, I really like maybe the World Health Organization has a great one and it talks about like someone that had COVID or presumed COVID because we know that not always someone could have gotten a test or it depends on the time period or maybe everyone around you had a positive test, but you just never went out to get one. But, you know, you had COVID sort of thing. And then you have symptoms that either continue on or ones that are like that happen later that can be new. And usually, you know, these happen within three months. So it can be some delay before these symptoms come on. 
So if you have good reason to believe you've had COVID, whether you've tested or not, and you don't get better or you do improve, but then start experiencing sort of a relapse in symptoms or new symptoms weeks or months later, you may have long COVID. And if you do, you're not alone. According to a study published last month in Nature, at least 65 million people around the world have long COVID. And Dr. Gutierrez stresses, anyone can get it. It doesn't matter if it's Omicron, it doesn't matter if it's Delta, it doesn't matter if it's mild. There can There is a risk of people, whether it be, you know, whether you want to be even conservative and say it's only 5 to 10 percent versus, you know, some of the CDC data might say it's 20 percent. Even 10 percent of 100 million is 10 million people. 10 million people conservatively with long COVID in the United States. That's why some people call this a mass disabling event. So what's going on? Why do some people continue to experience illness for weeks, months, or longer, while other people seem to be fine? Well, there are four possibilities that come up frequently, and it's not an all-or-nothing sort of thing. The source of any given individual's long COVID symptoms could be caused by one or a combination of these things. Ready? Ready. First... There's the actual tissue damage caused by the virus that's recently ravaged your body. Tissue damage is you got COVID initially, you had tissue damage from the illness that you had. So that's people who have their lungs are damaged. They have interstitial lung disease. They have heart damage. They have a cardiomyopathy. They have pericarditis. And we know that diseases and infectious diseases and even, you know, pneumonias and hospitalization can cause those things. And so that's kind of nice to see like, okay, we know tissue damage. We're able to diagnose that. We have kind of the answers to that. And for those patients, we have medications and we have rehabilitation programs, et cetera, to help with that. COVID can cause damage to most of your organ systems and tissues because it can go wherever you have what are known as ACE2 receptors. And Well, that's pretty much everywhere. So heart, lungs, liver, pancreas, kidneys, blood vessels, brain. They're all vulnerable to tissue damage from the COVID virus. If the virus does damage to a particular organ, a person may experience a disease associated with that organ and never even link the illness with COVID tissue damage. Another possible cause of long COVID symptoms is something known as viral antigen persistence. This one's getting a lot of attention lately, and Gutierrez says that's for good reason. There's been now study after study showing that there's pieces of the virus still lingering in our body and probably causing some of the immune response. So they've found it in the GI tract, they've found it in the fat. They found even some in the brain, which was a little bit scary. You know, they found it in the um, poop of babies who were born when their mom, their mom was pregnant during her pregnancy, had COVID. The baby could be born months later and was found to have like some pieces of COVID in their, in their stool. So pieces of virus stay in your body, hiding 
undetectable by rapid antigen or PCR tests, just aggravating your immune system. But guess what? You might be able to treat that. In fact, there are trials going on giving some people with long COVID a 15-day course of the antiviral medication Paxlovid, hoping it'll get those little hidden pieces of virus once and for all. But then, you know, I worry about like, well, where is the virus? Can Is that medicine going to be able to get to it? Is it going to be enough days? What's the, t- you know, is it going to work for someone who's now been dealing with COVID for three years or is it only going to be helpful in the first six months? You know, so much to still figure out. Including whether another vaccine dose might help. Some people have reported an easing of their long COVID symptoms after getting a shot. So there has been some studies looking at vaccines and the vaccines in some patients has been helpful, you know, to get the vaccine. And some of that thought is like, oh, is it, you know, inducing an immune response? And then you're kind of like fighting off the rest of the COVID in your system. But then some patients after vaccine actually get worse too. And some, probably most of them maybe stay the same. Okay. How about autoimmunity? That's number three. Is the initial COVID virus activating some people's immune system in such a way that it's attacking healthy cells and tissues long after the virus is gone? A study published in JAMA last year looked at blood samples from people who'd gotten COVID at 3, 6, and 12 months after their diagnosis. They compared the samples to those from healthy people and people who'd had other types of respiratory infections. After a year, 41% of the COVID group had detectable autoantibodies in their blood. Most of the healthy people had none. Well, we have safe and effective treatments for several autoimmune diseases. You know, so that's even one of the other treatments they're going to look at is like, can we give patients medications that we give people with autoimmune disease, you know, medications that we already have for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, and see if it helps people with long COVID kind of control those cells so that you're not creating these um, autoantibodies that are, you know, maybe attacking your own system. And then there's dysbiosis. That's what it's called when living things in your gut, your gut flora in your microbiome, are knocked out of balance. In January 2023, the National Institutes of Health reported on a study that found that COVID infection reduced the diversity of bacteria in the gut microbiome, which could allow harmful microbes like opportunistic or antibiotic-resistant bacteria to sort of get a hand up over the healthy bacteria that usually keeps it in check. The small study also found the lining of the gut was changed in a way that allowed the bad bacteria to get into the bloodstream and reach other organs, potentially causing additional infections. Gutierrez says it's not a surprise that COVID can cause big changes in the gut. Does that get thrown off by infections? Yes. By taking certain medications? Yes. By what's our in, in our environment? Yes. And so is COVID doing the same? Yes. Does it make sense to her that dysbiosis could contribute to or even cause some long COVID symptoms? Also, yes. So much of our immune system is in our gut. 
And, you know, there's also so much now with like the gut brain connection and they actually find like patients develop Parkinson's. They know that like early on they have maybe even before they develop the traditional Parkinson's symptoms like the tremor and the slowing, they actually had some GI symptoms years before that. So how would you treat that? Do you treat for some kind of like bacterial overgrowth? Do you give prebiotics or yeah, give them a prebiotic diet or eat certain foods or uh, right probiotics or you're exactly right. The, the gut flora transplant is sometimes what they have to do when someone has really bad C. diff infections. And is that what we're going to have to do to, you know, help patients with long COVID? Any one of these things might cause a person to continue to be sick long after their initial infection has resolved. But which is it? Right, exactly. Is it one? Is it two? Is it all the above? Are one Is one thing connected to the other? You know, probably dysbiosis is driven by some viral antigen persistence in your GI tract, which then is going to drive an immune response and autoantibodies which may be causing tissue damage. Ah! So many questions. Gutierrez says the federal government needs to focus and pony up a pile of additional money to help researchers find answers. They had Operation Warp Speed to try to get the vaccines and the treatments, but now it's pretty much stopped. Now we don't want to do Warp Speed long COVID, but we need to. If she were to design such a program... It would be trials with patients who have long COVID. We need to compare them with patients who've had post-infectious diseases as well. We need to say like, you know, ME-CFS, the myalgic encephalomyelitis, or what's known as chronic fatigue syndrome. These patients have been for decades suffering. You know, how does their blood, body, GI tracts, cardiac tests look compared to what patients with long COVID have? Let's figure out, you know, if you have long COVID that looks like this, Let's check you for microclots. Let's check you for viral antigen persistence. Let's check you for dysbiosis and autoimmunity. And if you have that, then if you have the microclots, are we going to try, okay, let's do these different trials of medications for clots on these patients. If you had the autoimmune response, then let's check this. Let's try you on this lupus medication. If you have you know, dysbiosis, are we going to do fecal transplants over here? Let's, you know, give this group of people Paxlovid for one for two weeks, one for, you know, six months and see how they do. It's just like, we need to, we need to start with it right away. Because millions of people are suffering. Millions of people have lost their jobs. The quality of their lives has disintegrated. Their very identities have dissolved. And some people who've survived the initial infection that may have even been mild are dying suddenly of heart attacks or strokes or of other causes that are aftershocks of the initial viral earthquake. So there's definitely risk of clotting. That's what strokes and what heart attacks are, you know, kind of larger clots and also pulmonary embolisms. And with that, we know that there is research that shows there is risk for clots, and not even just in the days after COVID, but even the months after COVID as well. And it just depends on, 
you don't know if you're going to be that person that gets, you know, the big clot. And so it's definitely, there's some people that might be at risk before, you know, are you a smoker? Are you a, um, someone that has hyper, you know, dis cholesterol problems to start with and we're kind of an at-risk population are they going to be at higher risk of getting one but then I've also seen really healthy people who have no risk factors get clots in their legs or a clot in their brain and so it's one of those other things like yes it's a risk and and we need to figure out what makes that person be at the bigger the higher risk and if we don't start taking the long-term long COVID threat seriously there's going to be more people getting infected, more people getting long COVID, more people having disability. It's going to impact our economy. It's going to impact our workforce. It's going to impact our youth and our future. And so really something needs to be done about it. We can't keep on ignoring it. Thank you, Dr. Monica Verdusco Gutierrez. In the early months of the pandemic, nearly three years ago now, we started this show. The initial questions were around survival. How do you survive this novel virus and its deadly march around the world? Quickly, though, I had an additional question. What happens if you get COVID and live? We began to find out in the early months as some survivors began talking about continued illness and disability. They called themselves long haulers and reported symptoms ranging from an inability to think straight, to walk down the block, get out of bed. And some, and remember we're talking pre-vaccine, were experiencing blood clots and having heart attacks and strokes. We did our first Petri Dish episode on long COVID in October of 2020. Since then, more than 200 symptoms have been associated with long COVID, and we've learned that kids can get it, teens, young people, old people, anyone could get it. And every time you're infected with the COVID virus, your risk of developing long COVID increases. To those who say that's no big deal, even if you don't get the most disabling version of long COVID, do you really want to be sick for months, for a year? Can you even hold your life together if you're sick that long? And what if, say, your brain never fully recovers? Even now, three years later, the best advice is... Try not to get infected. Get vaccinated or boosted. It reduces your risk of getting long COVID if you do get a breakthrough infection. Wear a good mask if you're inside with people who don't live with you. And lobby for filtered air and better ventilation where you work and where your kids go to school. It is so frustrating when people, including the president, say COVID is over. When hundreds of people are still dying in the United States every day. But I can't do anything about that. All I can do is follow the science and try not to get infected again. 
So that's what I'm doing. I hope you will, too. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by TBR News Director Dan Katz, Jacob Rosati, and me. Uh, Jacob Rosati also composed all the music and created the sound design for this show. Petri Dish is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bunny Petrie. Talk to you soon. Petri Dish is underwritten by UT Health San Antonio, and we often speak to nurses, doctors, scientists, and researchers there for expertise and insight into the subjects we cover. But neither UT Health nor any of its employees influence the stories we choose to tell or how we tell them.